Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Amy Webb is a futurist and a best-selling, award-winning author. She's a professor of strategic foresight at the NYU School of Business and the founder of the Future Today Institute. She is a visiting fellow at Oxford University's Said School of Business, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Geotech Center, a fellow in the United States-Japan Leadership Program, and a Foresight Fellow in the U.S. Government Accountability Office Center for Strategic Foresight. She was elected a lifetime member to the Council on Foreign Relations. She was a visiting fellow at Harvard University, also a delegate on the former U.S.-Russia Bilateral Presidential Commission. She advises CEOs in some of the world's largest companies, three-star generals and admirals, and executive government leadership on strategy and technology. She's the author of several popular Popular books, including The Big Nine, The Signals Are Talking, and most recently, The Genesis Machine, our quest to rewrite life in the age of synthetic biology. Webb was named by Forbes as one of the five women changing the world, listed as the BBC's 100 Women of 2020, and ranked by Thinkers 50 as one of the 50 most influential management thinkers in the world. In this session, she shares with us why we should not be trying to predict the future, but rather be prepared for multiple futures, where we should be looking for trends, why so many companies get it wrong when they seek to map out the future scenarios that they need to plan for, and three steps to prepare your organization for the future. Ladies and gentlemen, Amy Webb. Amy, thank you so much for being here with us. I know that you're super busy and appreciate you taking some time to talk to us. Sure. Thanks for having me. So many of our listeners know your work well, and many of them follow your methodology. We're going to be talking about strategy here, which is the area that you live in. And one question I like to begin all of these interviews with, I never get the same answer. So if you could complete this sentence for me, what is your definition of strategy? Well, I work in strategic foresight. My definition is going to relate to how organizations are planning for the farther future and the way that they are doing that using decisions in the present. I should note that my background is economics and game theory. So how people make decisions and how that relates to the growth or collapse of a company has been a space that I've been paying very close attention to for a very long time. As it relates to foresight, the best way to think about this is what are the emerging weak and strong signals of change? And the way that we do this is by looking at 11 macro sources. What are those emerging signals? Can we quantify those signals and validate them as longitudinal trends using data and modeling versus gut and what feels like it's a good part of the hype cycle to be paying attention to? And then importantly, tracking the trajectory and timing of those changes and using all of that as the foundation to think through what are the next order impacts. So in my world, strategy is very much about trying to quantify next order impacts, anticipate them, and rehearse the future. One of the models that we use with all of our clients and I published in HBR is a different way to think about time. 
in my world, I don't think of time in a linear way. If you build out a linear timeline, that's really good for milestones. If you're on a three-year strategic planning cycle with your board of directors or your executives, typically what you're doing is you're marking milestones and KPIs in progress on that two or three-year corporate strategy. The problem is that it doesn't account for uncertainty. This is where a lot of companies fall short and they don't have the ability to recalibrate. So I do not use a line. I use a cone. It's a different shape. So the intersecting vectors where that cone begins on the left, that represents today. And the further out in time you go, the wider the angle becomes on the inside of that cone, and that represents uncertainty over time. This is really important because if we divide that cone into four time horizons... Most companies, when they're thinking about strategy, only really think about the two time zones on the left side or the side of the cone where you've got ample data and evidence. And the problem is that those first two time zones are about tactical actions and strategic building blocks and then your strategy, your plan. So they're not time horizons by time. They are. This is more of a multi-dimensional space versus a two-dimensional space. So we're tracking progression of time, but we're also tracking uncertainty. There's different types of uncertainty itself. We operate in VUCA space. So this is volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, which are actually pretty different things, which means that you should be thinking about this in a more multidimensional way. And most companies and most of the executive teams that I interact with tend to oscillate between tactics and strategy, which means they're slave to that PNL, even at executive levels. And so what they're really doing is they think they're working further out in the future, but it's maybe two years, even in industries where you've got longer development cycles like pharma it's still relatively short term. And what happens is they don't work on those third and fourth time horizons, which we would call vision and transformation. So there's just this constant decision-making in the very near term without really thinking through the longer-term implications. The other important thing is that the very near-term thinking makes people feel like they're absolved of tracking signals that are adjacent to the industry or the company and how it might develop. So I can list a bunch of disaster stories, many different companies that got trapped into to the success fallacy and stop looking for signals on the outside or stopped working the right-hand side of that time cone. It's an addressable problem. You just have to be willing to think near and long-term simultaneously. How do you get to be in many strategy sessions, board meetings, talking to senior leaders? And what's kind of a tip? Is there a go-to line or argument or logic that you use to get people to honestly appreciate the import of thinking about those longer-term horizons, three and four? There's two things happening in most companies. One, there's an overweighted sense of urgency and yet, strangely, an underweighted sense of urgency. It's a weird paradox. So there's this sense that we're missing the big innovation, we're missing what's happening, and we get this question all the time. What white spaces should we be paying attention to? But at the same time, there is very little motivation to make any substantive changes if it feels like it might impact that PL negatively in any way. And the reality is that most of the time it won't. Obviously, I can't go into specific companies that we work with, but I can tell you that this is a problem that persists within telecommunications where we do quite a bit of work. We know that there are plenty of forces of change that are going to drastically impact the future of telecommunications in a fairly negative way if no changes are made. There's your sense of urgency, right? And we can give you some projections on time. However, most of these companies are so squeezed that they're really paying attention to just the next quarter. Elon Musk is in the process of launching Starlink to reconnect Ukraine as we speak, you would think that that would be a pretty strong signal that maybe traditional telecommunications could be completely disrupted by an outsider. And yet the impetus is just not there 
I think the mark of a really terrific leader is somebody who makes some space to explore that territory and empowers, especially the sales force of an organization where you get a lot of resistance or the technical side of an organization who has maybe a different mandate. A really effective CSO or CEO is going to be somebody who invites these other parts of the organization to go on that thinking journey with them about the future and to not tether all of the KPIs of the org or somebody's comp package, which we see all the time, specifically to those quarterly P&Ls. That's important, but it's also so short-sighted, it makes a company vulnerable. So you talk about getting input from the edges, from the non-obvious places, getting input broadly from inside your organization. Talk about spending time thinking about the longer term. Something else that I might be getting wrong from our conversations is that you talk about not predicting a timeline, not predicting even what is going to happen, but being ready for lots of possible futures. Could you explain that to me? There's a pretty big misunderstanding in the marketplace of what a futurist does. And most of us who practice strategic foresight don't typically refer to ourselves as futurists. The academic discipline goes back a century, and modern foresight was actually born from H.G. Wells, believe it or not, who, as we all know, was a speculative fiction writer and journalist and sci-fi writer, wrote a fairly important paper detailing why a methodology needed to be created to explore plausible futures. That really set the foundation for what is today's strategic foresight. And initially, most of that work was being done in the military and in the government, and it it was in a more narrow way for the purpose of exploring what if war gaming tactics. And Pierre Vac in the 70s was this kooky guy who was trying to get executives to look for signals outside the industry, think about next order impacts, tie that back to business planning and strategy, and convincingly did this in a company called Royal Dutch Shell. And it's because of this methodology that the company was able to predict oil shocks. Now, I say the word predict because in that case, they were looking at fairly narrow sets of data. Today, you can do narrow scope forecasting, which is done in limited circumstances if you have a specific set of parameters, or you do what's more common, broader-based foresight. The point of all of this is not to make predictions because there are too many variables, so the math does not work out, which is fine because any prediction you might make is very likely no longer going to be valid because you've got new signal inputs and new data. So this is about being prepared. And part of how you do that and what my work is about is using data and evidence to model out plausible next order impacts. There's three sides of the work. One is trends, and some people who work in this space just focus on trends. Trends in my space are longitudinal, so we are not looking at trendy ideas. We are much more interested in what persists as longer-term change, and in my company mostly tracks science and technology. So at our annual report, it launches at South by Southwest in a couple of weeks. That's the 15th anniversary this year. And we've got 574 trends, some of which we've been tracking for 15 years. So that's one side. Then there's mapping and modeling uncertainty. And the way that you do that is through scenarios. Scenarios can read like fiction. They can be very visual, but for them to be useful inside of a business context, they have to be strategic, which means you have to use them to do something called rehearsing the future, which is asking questions. It's like another way to do a gap analysis. There's a SWOT analysis that is specific to scenarios. And then the third part of that process is great. Now, what do we do about it? 
And that's where you reverse engineer your preferred plausible future to the present. And that is the handoff between strategic foresight and strategy to strategy and insights, or you might infuse some of that middle process with consumer insights and business intelligence. And I guess then part of the ongoing work afterwards is the tracking of the trends or the threats or the shifts or monitoring, I guess, is what I'm asking. There should be a division in every company that is charged with monitoring signals of change and trends. And there should be an established paradigm that very clearly everybody understands what the prioritization mechanism is, meaning at what point has something escalated that now a stakeholder within the organization has to make a decision. That is something that every organization should do and almost no organization does it. We see tons of work in both insurance and finance happening in both sectors. I don't don't see it at all happening in retail. Retail is on a much shorter time horizon, telecommunications, health. It's missing in some other places. I might just add here that I know that futurists have a not-so-stellar reputation, and I think that's because there are a lot of people very interested in technology or interested in the future and feel like they've got their finger on the pulse of what's happening next, and so they make predictions or they make speeches. That is really not what this work is about. The day-to-day pieces of this work are a lot of research and a lot of modeling. And this is my way of saying that we go through fits and starts of foresight being important. I did a study on my own to see when in the past strategic foresight has peaked. And usually whenever there has been some type of global catastrophe or there is some type of new technology that is really crossing over into mainstream vernacular, or if there's just an undercurrent of societal anxiety, you start to see the term futurist or future Futurology popping up again. I pulled archives from the New York Times, and this tracks for the past hundred years. So I think given the current circumstances where we've got the global pandemic completely upended work, the economy, everyday life, we're also standing on the precipice of game-changing technologies. You are probably hearing the term futurist much more than you ever have before. You might know somebody who's calling themselves a futurist. I invite many others to join the field, but I would ask you to do the legwork to learn the methodology and the processes because it is very much not about making predictions. That's not what we do. In all your work in trends, what I think is really fascinating is that you recently have decided that there is one area of study that is important enough that you dedicated a long time to go really deep into it. And that's what you call synthetic biology. And you say this has the opportunity to heal without prescription medicines, to grow meat without harvesting animals, to engineer our families when nature fails us, and even to confront our looming climate catastrophe. For those uninitiated like myself, I'm still honestly trying to get my head around it and its implications. Could you describe what synthetic biology is? Sure. So everybody on my team, we all have different areas of research and mine are artificial intelligence and synthetic biology. And weirdly enough, they are very connected to each other. Artificial intelligence is kind of an umbrella term that describes many other types of technologies. And similarly, synthetic biology is an umbrella term that describes gene editing and CRISPR and other related technologies. It's an emerging area of science that involves redesigning organisms for useful purposes by engineering them to have improved or new abilities. This is a relatively new field of science. 
maybe 20 years old, that combines engineering and design and computer science with biology. And artificial intelligence actually plays a fairly big role in all of this. And I think that 10 years from now, possibly sooner, we're going to be talking about synthetic biology the way that we talk about AI today, which is to say that I think the average person at this point has some basic understanding of what AI is. And it is a common enough term, especially in business, that people are thinking about it, decisions are being made. I think we're going to be in the same space when it comes to SynBio. This is actually not just about designer babies. If you think of the basis of computer code being ones and zeros, then you can think of the fundamental operating system of life running on ACTG code. Those are the letters in DNA. So if we have the ability to reprogram or program those sequences in different ways, then that gives us the ability to do lots of things that we couldn't do before, which range from engineering synthetic silk or synthetic nylon or synthetic leather to taking cells from a chicken, putting those cells into a bioreactor and having chicken in a few days or a few weeks versus in the amount of time it would take to grow chicken on a commercial farm. That opens up some interesting possibilities considering that the Super Bowl wasn't that long ago and Americans ate 1.5 billion chicken wings, which is a lot of chicken on a single day. And that took just an extraordinary amount of resources and caused a lot of environmental pollution. There is a totally different way to be thinking about how we create chicken, which has a broader impact on our global supply chains and on the cold chain, among other things. So this is really important stuff. And there is a ton of money being thrown at this space to some degree because of COVID. There's a startup led by some biotech veterans that just raised $3 billion so that's not the valuation. That's the amount of capital they actually raised, which means that the valuation is 10x that, right? And the whole point of that is to combat aging by harnessing cells. Much like AI, SynBio is on a very long trajectory. This is long horizon stuff. I cannot think of a single business sector that is not in some way going to be impacted by this. That's where I was going to go to next is I can think immediately, oh, healthcare, longevity, and I can think food. But can you talk to maybe some of the potential entailments that someone might not be thinking about, a sector that maybe seems unrelated? We do some work with a major retailer and creating clothing takes a lot of resources. You have to really make your predictions right in terms of fashion and what people are going to want to wear. There are also now geopolitical issues that are going to be challenging to contend with because for a lot of countries, a lot of companies, cotton is being grown in the Western regions of China, which is politically fraught right now. And given what we're seeing with Russia, Ukraine and Russia's alliance with China, I think that that's probably only going to get worse. So companies are going to need optionality. If we think about components of microchips and semiconductors, again, this is geopolitically fraught. We have supply chain issues. We have physical logistics issues. If you think about semiconductors and chips, we can only shrink these things down so much and our demands are becoming more sophisticated. So there's actually a company that last week or the week before, Roswell Technologies, launched the world's first molecular microchip so this is a chip with 16,000 sensors embedded in it, and it can do some pretty cool stuff, but it is nanobiotech. It's a different approach, which at some point could fundamentally alter what computer systems look like. This is heady stuff, but the reason that I wrote the book now and the reason that I think it's important for us to be talking about this is because my previous book was about the futures of artificial intelligence. And what led up to that book was me being in meetings with a lot of 
chief executives who were making decisions about AI without really understanding what it was that they were making decisions about. There also seemed to be this kind of land grab in terms of M&A of quickly trying to throw money at or acquire startups without, again, really understanding the longer term implications. So now here we are where regulators in almost every country are talking about breaking up big tech. I don't think we should put ourselves in a position where a decade from now, we've got regulators talking about breaking up big biotech because that has implications on a planetary scale. Well, I have a ton of other questions, but we are reaching the top of our time with you. I highly recommend people read The Genesis Machine, Our Quest to Rewrite Life in the Age of Synthetic Biology. Any other tips for how people can learn more and educate themselves as they should be doing also with AI? Our research is freely available and our methodology and frameworks are open sourced. So that's available on our Future Today Institute website. And if you are interested in synthetic bio, I guess I will reveal an Easter egg that we hid. But at the end of the book, the bibliography is actually 51 pages long and our publisher only let us have 10 pages. There's a QR code, but if you go through the trouble of clicking on it, it takes you to a Dropbox folder that has nested folders of TED Talks that I curated. We've got Khan Academy videos if you want to have a refresher course on what you forgot in biology class. There's reader guides. There's just a ton of stuff. This is one of these things where I worry that everybody's going to pay attention to the space too late. And by that point, it's going to be hard to regulate. It's going to be hard to make decisions. We have time now. So part of what we're trying to do is to get people to plan better for the future. That's awesome. Last little thing, if I just steal 30 seconds. You've given already a enough content for us to absorb, but I know you're also a huge science fiction fan. I know that you write science fiction, work with producers on TV shows and commercials. What is a science fiction book or movie that we should be seeing now? Well, I can tell you there's a movie coming out this summer that nobody should see. (laughs) (laughs) That's another story for another time. I think if you are interested in politics and also space, The Expanse, which is both a book series and a terrific show on Amazon, was great. They got a lot of that tech and that science. Really, I think they did a great job. Foundation is one of my favorite books, and the main character is a futurist. So that's on Apple TV. I think the first season of Westworld did a phenomenal job. That was on HBO. Really terrific job of helping us think through the implications of AI and algorithmic determinism. Upload is another really terrific show. That one's on Amazon. And that one is about people uploading their memories and when they die, they continue to live on. It's a really clever concept that I think is done pretty well. I think the best sci-fi shows and books are those that start with ideas that are plausible in the present and don't make the technology the focus so that it becomes a distraction. To that end, I think Kim Stanley Robinson does a phenomenal job writing about the environment and the future. So it's another one to check out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us for the work that you do and for being here with us, Amy. Sure thing. Thank you. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor, and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of Outthinkers.